Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I want to welcome you again to our regular Saturday night, Saturday night Live at Pine Lake Speakers Meeting. My name is Becky, and I'm an alcoholic. I am honored to introduce tonight's guest, Speaker Rick C., all the way from Muscatine, Iowa. My name's Rick. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. It's good to see all of you, most of you anyway. My wife got me a new watch. Wait till you see this damn thing. Look at the size of that thing, right? It's good to be here. We'll go somewhere, believe me. Might be out of here, but we'll go somewhere. Uh, I'd like to thank Daryl for calling me and asking me to come out here. Uh, and uh, Jack for uh, paying for my plane ticket. You guys did it. He wrote the check, right? Uh, and Mark for uh, wasting his Saturday or Friday night uh, meeting me at the airport and trying to find a hotel to land me in and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't really know why I'm here. I don't rightly get that. I showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous in July 1986, and I ain't never left, and I ain't never drank since then. And uh, after I was around for five or six years, I uh, found out that that I could die just as easily from alcoholism without drinking as I could while I was drinking. And I met somebody who showed me that uh, that I could maybe get well and wouldn't have to live that way anymore. And and I did it uh, based on desperation. And, uh, and I've continued to do it uh, since then. And uh, really, if I'd have known all you folks was going to want to know uh, what I did with all that, I would have took better notes along the way. Uh, <laughs> so I just kind of make it up as I go. And uh, I was thinking, I'm, I don't have, I've got three jokes, and I've been using them for about 12 years. And <laughs> I don't think that they've made it to the Pacific Northwest, because I haven't, right? This is the furthest west and the furthest north I've ever been. I didn't think the sun was ever going to go down yesterday. Jeez. <laughs> I go to bed pretty early anyway. My old sponsor used to say, man, you're the only guy I know that wears sunglasses to bed, right? But anyway, I was, I was, I was sitting on the airplane flying out here, and it takes forever to get here. Christ, I didn't know you could be this far away from home and still be in the United States, right? <laughs> so I'm flying out here and I'm thinking, man, I don't want to use one of the three jokes, you know. Uh, I get tired of telling them. I mean, they're good jokes. But anyway, I thought of one. I didn't think of it. I just won. You guys may have heard it. I, I, uh, it it's a relatively new thing. I, I heard about it about six months ago. But uh, I don't know why I'm here. And I suppose I got something to say. I hope I do, but I'm not sure. But anyway, 
There's this guy and he's walking down the street and he sees a sign in front of a house that says, Talking dog, free to good home. You guys heard this one? Some of you say yeah, some of you say no. You want to hear it or not? For crying out loud. Okay, okay. Always got to have a group conscience about stuff. So a guy goes up and knocks on the door, says, you got a dog? This dog talks, really? He goes, he's in the backyard. So he goes to the backyard. Dog laying there underneath the shade tree. Looks like he's about 10 or 12 years old. The guy looks at him, reaches over and pets the dog a little bit, talks to the dog. Dog just lays there. Dog don't say nothing. Guy talks to him, I poochie, poochie, poochie. Dog don't say nothing. Guy gets up to leave. Dog says, don't stop now. Guy turns around, looks at him. Dog says, where are you going? He goes, you really talk. He goes, yeah, I talk. <laughs> What's up with the talking dog? He goes, I don't know. He said, when I was about six months old, I figured out I could talk. I can speak English. So he said, freaked out my master. My master told somebody about it. The CIA found out about it. So I spent the next 10 years uh, being one of the highest operative agents in the CIA because I could be in... Uh, meetings of people, heads of state, they would freely speak with, with just a dumb dog being there. Nobody knew that I could, uh, could relay the information they were sharing. So I did that for about nine or ten years, traveled all over the world, and he said jet lag got to me and stuff. And he said after that, after I did it for about ten years, he said I retired from the CIA, came here to live. <laughs> Guy goes up and knocks on the door and he says, why are you giving this dog away? He's like a national treasure. The guy says, uh, I told you about the CIA? He goes, yeah. He goes, he didn't do any of that shit. He's such a liar. He says, yeah. <laughs> My name's Rick. I'm alcoholic. <laughs> Free Rick to a good home, right? It's good to be here. My family thanks you. Uh, they truly do. Uh, about this time of year in 1986, I was uh, uh, 26 years old and pretty tired, right? pretty worn out. Uh, didn't know what was wrong with me, but knew there was a whole lot not right with me. And uh, I don't want to. I don't spend a lot of time talking about drunkologues. I figure most folks in here uh, know what that's about. Um, what's more important, I feel, is that I share the message of Alcoholics Anonymous rather than my story. But I am a drunk. I am an alcoholic. And it's important that I show you a little bit of what that looked like for me, right? Uh, at the end of May uh, of 1986, I was living in Orlando, Florida. I was an iron worker. And uh, I got a phone call at work on a Friday at noon. Uh, they came out of the, the management shack and got me and said, uh, your father's on the phone. Uh, that ain't good, right? Um, uh, uh, my dad, uh, at that point in my life, didn't really like talking to me too much, uh, let alone calling me, so I knew something not too good was going on. I went to the phone and I said, uh, Dad? He said, yeah, he said, I just thought you'd want to know your cousin Jeff got killed in a motorcycle wreck last night. Don't know when the funeral is, but I thought you'd want to know. I'll see you later. And he hung up on me. And I got a, a, a ticket home. 
plane ticket home and I got home. And uh, just a, little, a few little snippets of, of that a trip. Uh, I went to the lounge before I got on the airplane. It was the first time that I'd ever flown. And by the time I got to the airplane, uh, the lady said, hold the door, I think he's here. And as I got on the plane, uh, I said, how long is it before I can get a drink? And they said, hold your horses there, big boy, right? And when they came to give the drinks, I said, I'll take two of whatever it is that you have. And every time you come by, I'll take two more. And when I got to the airport in Chicago, uh, the plane that I was supposed to fly to Muscatine on broke. And they were going to put me in a hotel. And that's all good and fine. They put me on the shuttle to send me to the hotel. And now I haven't had a drink in about an hour, and I'm, 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 I'm good and thirsty. And I go to the hotel lounge, and the, the, there was a, a bit of a discussion between me and the bartender as to whether he was going to serve me or not. And uh, his manager convinced me that as long as I sat in the corner and didn't cause any trouble that I could drink. And I remember having a couple of drinks there. Uh, the next thing I knew, uh, there was a Domino's delivery guy knocking on my hotel door. Right? I got up and I flew to Muscatine the next day, a few days later. Uh, this all seems random, but I hope that by the time we're done talking, this all makes sense. A few days later, I'm sitting on the patio of my mom and dad's house. And it's nice to be out in the country again and not be in the urban environment of Orlando. And I, I've got a, a, a cooler of beer and empty beer cans on the table. And my dad come home from work. He was a switchman on the railroad. And he came home from work and he started mowing his yard. And he mowed for about 10 minutes or so. And he stopped. And uh, he went to the garage for something. He came out and I said, hey, Dad, you want a beer? And he said, yeah. And I threw him a beer and he we drank the beer, smoked cigarettes, and visited a little bit. He finished his beer, and I said, you want another one? He said, yeah, I'll drink another one. And I threw it to him, and he drank that, and we talked some more. And after he drank that one, uh, he got up, set the beer down. I said, you want another one? He said, no. He said, I've I'm, I'm got to go finish mowing. And he started walking away from me, and I said, hey, Dad. And he said, what? And I said, can I ask you something? He said, sure. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, do what? And I said, how do you drink uh, two beers and then just not drink anymore? I don't know how you do that. And he said, uh, I don't know how you do that. And he pointed at the picnic table full of beer cans. See, there was a f fundamental wiring difference between Dad and I. And I didn't know what that was, and I wasn't going to know what that difference was for another six or seven years, right? But there was a difference between dad and I. And see, all of my adult life, I'd tried to drink like my dad. Right? I'd hoped that one day I'd be able to come home and mow the yard, right? drink a couple of beers, and then get back to mowing the yard. I lived in Orlando. And uh, if you've ever been to Florida, mid, uh, uh, you know, central Florida in the summertime, it gets hot down there. And I'd go out and mow my yard. I get started mowing, and I make about a lap around there, and heat index is 193, right? And so I'd uh, make maybe another lap just to show off my endurance, and then I'd, 
I'd go to the refrigerator and get a beer out, and I'd drink it, and then I'd drink another one. And once I got two, well, now I'm drinking, right? I'm thirsty. I don't know what this is all about, but now I'm drinking. So the lawnmower would sit there, and I'd get started the next day and make a couple laps. Jesus, it's hot. Stop. I was in a constant state of mowing the damn yard when I lived down there. And so, you know, Dad doing that was quite impressive to me. Uh, now, a few days after that, uh, we went to Southern Iowa, where my family's from, uh, to bury my cousin. And we got to my aunt and uncle's house, and uh, uh, my cousin Jeff that died was two years younger than me, and his cousin Jack was two years younger than him. I got 36 cousins. And, uh, uh, and me and Jack and Jeff and John are the, the youngest four. Well, my cousin Brian on the other side, we're the youngest five of those 36. And uh, we're kind of tight. And uh, I walked in Uncle Art and Aunt Marilyn's house, and I said, uh, where's, where's, where's Jack at? He was home. He'd come home from the Navy. And they said he's downtown. And in that little town I come from, Eldon is the name of it. Uh, Eldon's kind of famous, believe it or not. Uh, you ever see a picture of uh, that guy with the pitchfork and the angry woman? <laughs> uh, that house is in Eldon. Uh, I, I about burned it down when I was about five. Uh, I almost destroyed a national treasure. <laughs> anyway... They said he's downtown, and in Eldon, when you're downtown, that means you're down at a beer joint. And uh, I said, I'm going to go get him, and my dad said, no, you're not. And I got offended. And dad and I had a, uh, not an argument, but he thought that I was using that as an excuse to go to the beer tavern and to start drinking. And I convinced him that uh, drinking... Uh, before my cousin's funeral was the furthest thing from my mind and that uh, that I didn't have much in my life that was holy and sacred uh, but burying my cousin was sacred that was as close to sacred as I could get and that I wasn't going to drink and that I'm a little bit offended that that you think I'm going to and he said fine go get him and get back here and I went downtown and I went in the tavern and uh I walked in, and he was the only one in there. And he looked over at me. Right? He's sitting at the bar, and he looked over at me. And I said, hey, cuz. And he said, hey, cuz. I put my arm around him and said, come on, man, let's go do this thing. And he said, I don't want to. And I said, I know you don't, man, but we got to. We got to go do this. And he said, have a drink with me. And I said, not today, bud. I got to go. I'm not drinking. We got to go do this. Come on. And he said, "Have a drink with me for Jeff." And I'm telling you that a second before that, I had every resolution within me that I was not going to drink. And the ease with which OK came out of my mind to this day still boggles me. Still boggles me. The important thing of that is I walked out of that tavern four or five rum and cokes later, and I went to the funeral. I left the funeral, I left, I left the church during the ceremony. I went outside, I, had, I essentially had a meltdown. And the meltdown was is that I knew that there was nothing that was ever going to keep me from drinking. 
There's nothing, there's nothing holy enough. There's nothing sacred enough. There's nothing strong enough. There's no amount of love, uh, mercy, or grace that's ever going to keep me from drinking. I'm going to drink till the day that I die. I've never wanted to not drink more than I wanted not to drink that day. And I drank. And I knew that day that I'm going to drink till I die. I'm never going to stop. There's nothing that's going to be able to stop me. My sisters come and got me. They said, come on, we got to go to the cemetery. We went to the cemetery. And when the preacher started talking, I left the cemetery and I went to a tavern up on top of the hill from the cemetery. And the next thing I remember was a couple hours later, a couple of cousins of mine showed up and some other friends. And the next thing I remember is being at another beer tavern in downtown Eldon after dark, sitting at a table with my mom and dad and my Aunt Noni. Aunt Noni was about 85 at that time, sweetest lady I ever met. Found out the next day that I knocked over a table on her. Sometimes that stuff stings, you know? I'm not a wuss, but it stings, right? Next thing I remember is being in a car with Jack and a couple of girls. The next thing I remember is being at a softball game in some little town. Next thing I remember is waking up in bed with some girl saying, what town am I in? And, uh, none of that stuff is on my list of things to do today. Right? A month and a half later or so, I'm back in Orlando. I'm trying really hard to get my act together, and I'm failing miserably every single day. And I woke up on the south side of Orlando in an apartment that wasn't mine on a Monday morning with a bunch of empty beer cans around me and uh, about a quarter of a gram of cocaine on a Weldon Hood lens and uh, a rolled up $10 bill next to it. And I said, man, not again. Right? And I drove home. I'd missed work. Right? I'd missed my ride to work again. I'm... I drove home and I got back to the house in Orlando and uh, I picked up my roommate's pistol. And I reached the bottom that day. All right? I want to explain to you what it is. Because it doesn't have anything to do with jail cells and car wrecks and broken hearts and none of that stuff. Right? Those stuff all may be contributing factors, but they're not the pinnacle point of it. What happened to me that day was there was no more crap left in me that said one day you're going to get your act together there was none of that left that was all burnt down right on the way home on that drive across to Orlando that took me 25 or 30 or 35 minutes I looked at my life and I could no longer believe the lie that one day I'm going to get my act together I'm going to be okay I'm going to get healed up because I looked at my life and I was in worse shape now than I was three months ago and I was in worse shape then than I was six months ago and I was in worse shape then than I was a year ago. And I was in worse shape then than I was two years ago. And I was in worse shape and on and on and on. And I realized that today is as good as this is ever going to be. This is it. This is as good as it's going to get, and I want out. And I picked up my roommate's pistol, right, and I held it up against my head, and I started pulling the trigger, and I didn't pull it far enough. And I got sober three days later, right? And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to AA a bunch, right? I went to 125 meetings in 90 days, right? 
the first five or six years that I was in AA, I, I probably averaged six meetings a week. Five or six meetings a week, right? I was sober, uh, I was sober four and a half years, and I went to, uh, there's a big treatment center up in Minnesota. I don't know if you folks heard of it out here. It's called Hazleton. I went there when I was uh, sober four and a half years, right? I say that that's what you do when uh, nobody knows how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And the folks in your AA group, you're scaring the hell out of them because they don't know what to right? you, Damn, they're going, damn, he ain't drank in five years. He ought to be getting better, right? He's so angry and violent, right? What are you looking at? Right? How's your day today, Rick? What do you care, right? You know? There weren't people lining up to try and carry the message to me, you know? Jeez, and then some poor girl married me. Let me tell you about that, right? Anybody here sober less than a year? Raise your hand, right? Any of you here sober less than a year that ain't married? Pay close attention. <laughs> Did you hear that kind of ornery, almost evil little giggle that came out? That means I'm back in the room, right? Uh, I'm sober a year, right? And I'd, I'd, oh man, I don't know why, but I'd tried going to church. I know why. I'd I'd done a fifth step in this little treatment center in Muscatine with this priest, right? And uh, he says, you know, if you ever get interested in spirituality, come see us. Come see us in our church. I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't worry about that too much, right? Well, I'm, I'm sitting in meetings, right, and everybody's telling me, you got to pray, you got to find God. And I talk to my dad, well, I don't get this God stuff, all this. And he goes, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'd go talk to a preacher. And I, my dad was a pretty wise guy. He really was. And I said, I don't want to talk to a preacher. I don't like them. I don't trust them. I think they're all hypocrites. He goes, well, how many of them do you know? <laughs> and I, I said, well, personally? And he goes, of course. And I go, well, not none and and he says well I know some and most of them are pretty good guys really they're pretty nice fellas maybe I don't know why I'd want to talk to a preacher about that and he goes well if you were going to buy a car who would you go talk to I said well a car dealership for crying out loud he goes all right so I go talk to this preacher right and I got some questions for him and I'm trying to, I want you to figure out and understand here that I'm 26 and I'm sober about six weeks. And I'm not very happy, right? I mean, I'm kind of happy that I'm alive and that I'm not drinking, but this is really overwhelming to me. And I, he asked me a question and I try to answer him. What I say is, I don't, I don't know. And he says to me, Rick, you can say the F word. And he said the F word, right? I went. You guys say that stuff too? <laughs> My vulgarity is entirely this guy's fault. But at any rate, <laughs> I start going to his church. And I'm there about, I'm, I'm there some Sunday, maybe a third or fourth time I'm there, and there's this girl there that uh, I'd known since I was nine years old. And she sees me in this church, and she's like, whoa, what are you doing here? You know, they ought to make that anonymous, really. They should, you know. Uh, I said, well, uh, 
you know, I'm kind of trying to not drink. And I met this preacher, and he he invited me down, and I kind of come down, and she goes, "You're not you're not drinking." And I said, no, I, I haven't drank for like eight weeks. And she said, you haven't drank anything. And I said, no. And she said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I don't really know. Uh, so I've seen her at church a few times. And then I decided church wasn't all that for me. Uh, uh, and a year later, I, my phone rings, and uh, she says, this is Ginger. Uh, I just got out of a treatment center. Uh, and I was wondering if you would uh, take me to a, a meeting or meet me at a meeting uh, tonight. And I said, I'll do whatever you want. Uh, if you want me to come and get you, I'll come and get you. If you want, want me to meet you. She says, well, why don't you just meet me there? I said, that's cool. I'll be there at quarter to eight. And she gets there about five to eight. And she sits with me and we talk, you know, have a meeting. Everything's good. Meeting gets over. I say to her, what would you think of that? And she said, these folks are nice. She said, I like this. I go, yeah, they're, probably, they're nice people. Uh, what are you going to do now? I mean, what what you got planned now? And she said, what are you doing? I said, I ain't got nothing. You know, I don't work. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> she says, uh, I don't, I don't have nothing to do either. I said, well, you want to go get an ice cream cone or something? She says, yeah. Okay. What do you think about me moving in with you? Uh, <laughs> that was on Wednesday, and I... St- I started the moving process on Friday. <laughs> we got married uh, six months later, and uh, she had two little kids. Right? We got in a fight one night. This is—I'm telling you all this because this is the, what I lived in the first years, two, three, four, five years that I was sober. Right? I'm not one of those guys that came into AA. Hell, I still ain't good. Right? I still I have no interest in being good. I, I tell you, I'm 53 years old, I'm a grandpa, and I can now honestly stand in front of you and say I have absolutely no ambition of being good. It's boring, right? It doesn't fit me well, right? Okay? So anyway, we get in a fight one night. You know how it is when you're sober, you know, six months, and you, she, she's sober six months, I'm sober a year and a half, and I'm a picture of health at a year and a half, right? And... Uh, uh, she said, I don't need you, right? And uh, she says, well, you either marry me or move out. I'm tired of playing house. And I say, oh, where's my suitcases, right? So I go get the grocery sacks and uh, load them up. <laughs> I don't need you. You ain't living here. No, I ain't. I'm leaving. Where are you going to live? Don't you worry about that, right? What I'm thinking is, hell, it's only 10 o'clock. I can go uptown and hang out at a beer joint. I'll find some place to live tonight. Know what I mean? Kick it back. Come on, right? And when I left the bedroom, there was a door open, and there was a little pair of eyes looking at me, right? And there was a little seven-year-old girl, six-year-old girl looking at me. And then I look in her brother's room, 
and he's four, and he's looking at me. And something inside me went, you can leave here and you can hook up with another girl in an hour, but do you really want to be the one that pulls the pin on these two kids? See, I'd, they'd fallen in love with me and I'd fallen in love with them, right? And she looked at me, Jessica looked at me, she said, are you going to leave us? And I said, no, hell no. I said, I'm just, I'm just mad. I ain't going nowhere. Go back to sleep. And I walked back in the bedroom. I said, well, I suppose everybody I get married once, let's give her a whirl, right? <laughs> right? May not have been the best motives. We were married for 18 years, right? I raised them kids. They call me dad. Their kids call me grandpa. They name kids after me. Through all of that and through what you guys have shown me here, I can tell you that I was raised with a principle my whole life that blood's thicker than water. I'm here to tell you that love's thicker than blood. I'm here to tell you that. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. And I'm sober five or six years, and I meet some guy. Came and talked in our town. A guy came and talked, and I ended up hosting him, right? And I'm sitting there having lunch with him. And he says to me, how long have you been sober? And I said, almost six years. And he goes, wow, that's a long time. And I said, yeah, it is. And he goes, man, a guy, guy's been sober six years. He goes, man, you know a lot about uh, alcoholism and stuff, don't you? And I said, yeah, I, I guess I do. And he goes, yeah, you know about enough to be dangerous to yourself and anybody that will listen to you. <laughs> And he looks at me, and I said, look, I, I, I want to ask you some stuff. And he said, what do you want to ask me? See, there was something about him that was different. I picked up on that, right? He said things that I'd never heard anybody else say, and he, and he talked about God more free than anybody I'd ever heard talk about. And he, and, he, and he described alcoholism in a very clear and concise way, and I'd never heard anybody do that. I always heard people describe alcoholism by way of drama and violence, and car wrecks, and jails, and stuff like that. And this guy talked about this allergy to alcohol that he had, that when he started to drink, he couldn't control how much he drank, and that set in motion circumstances. And then when he tried to not drink, he drank again every time. And I'd never heard anybody say that kind of stuff. And I said, uh, I got a question for you about this steps we're eating, right, eating lunch. And he goes, what do you got? And I go, I'm having a little trouble with the ninth step. And he said, I bet you are, right? <laughs> and I said, I'm also having a little bit of trouble with God, too. And he goes, that's quite obvious. Right? <laughs> and then he looks at me and he says, do you really want to talk about this or do you just want to have a nice, quiet lunch? And I said, no, I really want to talk about it. And he put his fork down. And what he said, uh, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's going to be real close. And he said, the problem you're having, the reason that you're having trouble with the ninth step is because you've never laid a, made a list of all the people that you're consciously aware of that you've caused harm to in your life. And the reason that you've never done that is because you've never humbly asked God to remove those things that stand in the way of your usefulness to him and to your fellows. 
And the reason you haven't done that is because you've never really decided that you want the things that are objectionable within you to be taken from you. And the reason you've never done that is because you've never really admitted, never really admitted to God and to another human being the exact nature of the wrongs in your life. And the reason you've never done that is because you've never taken a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. And you haven't done that because you haven't utterly abandoned yourself to God. The reason you haven't done that is because you don't believe God can take you to a place of sanity. And the reason you haven't done that is because you're not convinced that you're absolutely friggin' powerless over alcohol and that your life's unmanageable. <sighs> I couldn't even hit him. Right? <laughs> And he says, listen, he said, it's what you know is killing you. You think that you've been in AA a long time. You think you've been in AA six years and you're attached to all these things that you believe and all these things that you think you know and they're going to kill you. He said, it's the stuff that we know that holds us back. That's a trap. He said, it's the stuff that you don't know that's going to set you free, Rick. He said, if everything that you know about alcoholism and about God and about Alcoholics Anonymous and about yourself will fit in this coffee cup, how big of a container will it take to hold what you don't know? Because he says, it's what you don't know that's going to change your life. And I said, will you show me how to do that? And he said, I'd love to. Right? And I started working with him. He said, we've got to find out if you're alcoholic or not. And I said, man, I've been in AA almost six years. What do you mean we've got to find out if I'm alcoholic? He said, well, why do you think you're alcoholic? I said, I drank every day for like four or five years, every single day. I got drunk. I don't mean you're alcoholic. I said, well, what's it mean? He says, I don't know. Maybe you're bored. Right? <laughs> and I come up with two or three other reasons why I thought I was alcoholic, and he squelched them right away. And he said, let's start looking in the doctor's opinion and see if you have this allergy to alcohol. And there's a, there's a line in the book, a part in the book that says that that, that Dr. Silkworth had worked with uh, uh, these men. Uh, he had worked with a lot of guys who had, had worked on some problem or a business deal that was going to be settled up on a certain date favorably to them. And they started to drink sometime prior to the deal getting sealed, and they missed the appointment. And he says to me, did that ever happen to you? And I said, oh, dude, I, I, I never had no business deals, right? <laughs> Maybe getting car insurance or something, you know? <laughs> and he says, okay, any problems? I said, not really. I, I kind of traveled light. And if things became problem-esque, I'd just cut and run. And he said, well, why don't you pray about it? And ask God to show you some experiences that you've had where you're someplace where you want to be doing what you wanted to do. And you'd been working on that for a while, trying to make that happen, and then you started to drink, and you missed, the, you missed the appointment. I'm like, okay. And I talked to him like four or five days later, and he said, did you come up with anything? I said, yeah, kind of. And he says, uh, what did you come up with? And I'm kind of getting tired of this story, but it's kind of funny, right? And uh, he says, uh, what did you come up with? And I said, well, um, there was this girl that worked at the bank, right? And, and I wanted to go out with her. And she kept telling me no. And uh, I'd go into the bank 
you know, like every other Friday. With it. And, and I was a, uh, an iron worker in 1983 and 84, and I made as much money as I could make in Muscatine uh, being a blue-collar worker, seriously. It was, I was a, a union labor, skilled labor. I'd went through, I was an, a journeyman. I'd went through the apprenticeship, and, and I was making $16.5 an hour in 1983, which in Iowa was very, it was more money than my dad made, uh, right? And so I'm going in cashing these $400 checks trying to impress her and saying, what do you think, baby? Me and you go out tonight, we just have a little bit of fun. And she's 100, no, Rick, 200, 300, right? And I'd go in a couple of weeks later and flirt with her, call her darling and stuff, right? You know, that used to work on girls. Now they get offended when you call them darling. I don't, uh, no, I'm not going out with you. Spring passed, summer came on. Uh, about the end of July, I went in. And my hair was about down to there. Uh, tan, never wore a shirt. It was like an Aztec sun god, you know. Uh, <laughs> hair's almost white from being bleached out. Uh, air conditioner didn't work in my truck, and the heat index was about 114. I had on a, you know, a, a, like a wife beater. It's white, which makes the tan look really good, right? <laughs> Air conditioner didn't work, and it's hot, and I walk in the bank, and I just glistened, right? You know? <laughs> that did it for her. That got her right there, right? And she said she'd go out with me the next night. And so I go... I get ready to go pick her up, and I'm nervous. I get in the shower, right? Before I get in the shower, I drink a beer. I get out of the shower, I drink another beer. And while, before I left my apartment, I drank another beer. And I stopped at a convenience store on the way to pick her up, and I drank another beer. And I went to her house, and I met her mom and dad, and she got in the truck with me. I backed out of the driveway, put my truck in first gear, uh, put it in second gear, reached behind the seat, pulled out a beer, and said, do you want a beer? And she said, no, thank you. And I said, suit yourself. Went to third gear, and she said, and I really wish you wouldn't drink while you were with me. Hmm. And I remember looking at her in that white tank top. Oh, baby, now why you got to be this way? (laughs) This just ain't going to work out, right? <laughs> and I took her home. And, uh, and, my, and, and, and my sponsor's on the other end of the phone going, uh, wow, that's a pretty good example of the, of, of the phenomenon of craving. And I'm like, what? And he goes, well, I got a pretty good idea what made you tick when you were 22 or 23 years old. And uh, you probably thought there was a pretty good chance you were going to get next to this girl that night. And I said, yeah, maybe. He goes, let me ask you something. He said, if you hadn't had those three or four beers before you went to pick her up, do you suppose that you would have went out on a date with her, went and ate some food, maybe went to a movie, maybe went to a club, listened to a band, did some dance, and have a good night? I said, yeah, probably. He goes, then what happened? Wow. And when I got that, that started to put together pieces of the puzzle for for 15 years of my life. That explained why my dad could drink two beers and go back to mowing the lawn and I couldn't. 
It explained all kinds of things that otherwise I didn't have any explanation for. And when we started to look at this idea that I can't keep myself stopped from drinking, that had every, it made so much sense of what went on with me in that beer joint that day with, when, when Jeff was going to get buried. And then he asked me to come out from behind the bottle, and we started to see how my mental inconsistency of keeping me stopped from alcohol hadn't really gone away because I'd gotten in AA. That that same lack of power in being able to alter a behavior that I detested myself to do was just as absent in me as, as the power to stop drinking was. That whether it was pornography, money, right? Stuff that I said, man, I ain't doing that no more. I'm not doing it anymore. And I wouldn't until I got a chance to do it again. And it's tearing me up. And I started to see that the same mind that I was expecting to say no when somebody shoved a rum and coke towards me was the same mind that I was relying on to start to try to manage my life with, with these other areas, right? And I started to see, oh, my God. I can't stop myself. I have no effective mental defense. He says, we need to find out if your life's unmanageable. And he said, that doesn't have anything to do with parking places and stuff like that. He said, it's an internal condition. And what we did was we focused on a paragraph on page 52 that said we were having trouble with personal relationships. and We couldn't control our emotional nature. We're prey to misery and depression. We have a feeling of uselessness. We're full of fear. We can't make a living. We're unhappy. We can't seem to be of real help to other people. And he said to me, is that stuff going on with you? Is that stuff going on with you currently? So I want you to think about that. And I called him up and I said, man, it's been going on. Don't that go on with everybody? And he said, no. Now I'm here to tell you tonight, I don't say many things that are profound. And I'm not sure this is. But I'm the only person I've ever heard say this. If you're in Alcoholics Anonymous tonight and you're new, that stuff on page 52 is the stuff that needs to be treated. If that doesn't get treated, we will destroy ourselves through a variety of ways to try and bring relief to that sickened spirit. And I believe that that stuff on page 52 is the only thing that Alcoholics Anonymous was ever intended to treat. That's it. Nothing else. Alcoholics Anonymous cannot treat the way my body's wired. It can't change the way my body metabolizes alcohol. It cannot alleviate my craving for alcohol when I get alcohol in my system. You good people are loving, kind, and well-meaning, but I got news for you. Collectively, you do not have what it takes to change the way that I think. And as long as that stuff is going on inside of me, I'm going to be driven by all kinds of ideas to try to bring relief to that. And the only thing that I've found that will bring relief to that is an awakened spirit whatever that's going to look like. But that's the only thing that changes that. I found out that I'd had that stuff going on with me since my first conscious memory. Three years old, hiding behind a toilet in a basement, wishing that I was big enough to beat my mom up so that she quit hitting my sister. Right? And this isn't about growing up in an abusive home. This is about a little boy that wants to beat mommy up. I got a son-in-law that's a doctor of psychology. He says, yeah, that's not really part of the natural steps in human. <laughs> Maybe a little trouble with personal relationships there, Rick. Right? And I'm hiding, behind, I'm hiding behind the toilet because I'm full of fear. 
And then I want to be big enough to beat up my sister, but I feel useless, or beat up my mom, but I feel useless because I, yeah. And I'm three. I can't even really talk yet. And I got that going on. And then I go to kindergarten, right, and meet all you good people. And then grade school and then junior high. And all of that stuff is accelerated. It's all progressed. So that the first time I drank, the experience that I had with alcohol changed my life forever. Changed my life. I'm alcoholic. And my life's unmanageable. And that brought me square toe-to-toe, face-to-face with something that I'd been putting. Our book says that some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we weren't truly alcoholic. And when I got the full evidence of my alcoholism, it made me willing to seek God in a way that I'd never sought God. I did that. And I experienced the presence of God within me for the first time in my life, and my life changed. A few seconds after I experienced that presence, I abandoned my life to God, and I've never went back on that decision. That doesn't mean that I don't screw up, because I do. That doesn't mean that I don't, I'm not willful, because I am. But that means that I absolutely believe that whatever it is that I do, ultimately God can and will make use of that. Ultimately, it will be useful. All I have to do is come to it. Bring that to God, take ownership of it, ask forgiveness, and then turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And when you ask me for help, if I can tell you, you know, you come to me and say, man, I was, I was flirting with that new girl at the meeting. Well, yeah, dude, that'll, that's bad news, right? Did you flirt with one too? No, dude, I was flirting with her, right? That's, uh, right. Yeah, some of you guys get it, right? It's called staying current is what it's called, right? It ain't alcohol wasm, right? The stuff that I did 20 years ago probably ain't going to kill me. It's the stuff that I may want to do in that hotel room tonight, right? 3,000 miles from home. That'll kill me. Thankfully, I got a 7 o'clock flight, so it'd be no problem. Right? But at any rate, after I did that, I, this guy tells me you need to, to find the stuff that stood in the way of your usefulness to God and to your fellows. And so I wrote an inventory. I thought that'd be pretty easy. He says, make a list of the people, institutions, and principles with whom you're angry. And I had about 230 names on it. Uh, had a five-subject notebook, five five-subject notebooks full of fear, resentment, and sex inventory. The sex inventory wasn't nearly as impressive as I hoped it would be. <laughs> Most of it never happened, really. I became willing to be changed, and I realized that there was nothing I could do to change myself. I asked my sponsor one time, I said, how do I, how do I quit smoking? He said, oh, that's easy. I said, well, how do you do it? He said, well, just keep smoking until you can't no more. Right? How do I quit doing porn? Yeah, that's easy. How? Yeah, just keep doing it until you can't no more. Because as long as i got anything left up my sleeve, I won't be willing to allow God to use any tool necessary to remove those things from me that stand in the way of my usefulness to him and to my fellows. And there may be experiences in those things that I find despicable about myself that will be very, very useful to God and to my fellows. One of the things that I do not like about Alcoholics Anonymous is the arrogance that we have towards people's struggles in their life. We think that we've gone beyond those struggles. And then when we watch people struggling 
with things within their lives that we know that only a spiritual experience will conquer. We become smug. I used to do that. I don't do it anymore. I got no room to stand in judgment of anybody for anything. I do all this stuff and now I go to make amends to folks, to get my life changed. I went to my dad. You know, my dad loved me, no doubt about it. That Memorial Day weekend, 1986, on that Saturday morning that I woke up with that girl, I went to the restaurant in that little town. My dad was sitting there, and for the first time in my life, he looked at me with disgust and contempt. And he said, can you find a ride back to Muscatine, or do you need one? I said, well, I suppose I can find one. And he said, I think you better. And when I got back to Muscatine on Sunday, he said, how are you going to get back to Florida? I said, I don't know. I don't got any money left. Yeah, he said, I figured. And the next morning, uh, he woke me up. He said, get up. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm going to take you to Chicago. I got you a plane ticket from Chicago to Orlando. I'm going to drive you to Chicago. It's about 180 miles. I said, Dad, you don't have to. I know I don't have to do it, right? But I'm going to do it. get, Get your stuff together and get in the car. Let's go. And I rode up there, and I just think I looked out the window because I was thinking, why is he doing this for me? All right, why is he? I know he's madder than hell at me, but why is he doing it? So I had to go make some stuff right with him and Mom. And Dad was a good man. And he was that old school guy that a man's only as good as his word. And I owed him some money. I owed him $10,000 or so. And I said, I need to pay you that money. He said, how are you going to pay me that money? He said, man, I know how much you make. You're raising these little kids. and You can't afford that. And I said, I'll give you 20 bucks a week, every week. And he said, really? I said, yeah. He said, every week. I said, every week. We had been through that before. Believe it or not, I'd made that promise to him. <laughs> That's how we got to that $10,000 number. <laughs> it was three or $400 at a time, right? He said, okay, right? So I go over to mom and dad's house every Friday night or Saturday morning with a $20 bill and a check or a check. And I'd sit and eat pie or cake and visit with dad, right? Uh, shoving the money. And I did that for about three months, maybe four. And one day he shoved the money back to me. And I shoved the money to him. And he shoved it back to me. And I said, Dad, you got to take this money. I got to do this thing. And he said, Listen, I got a pretty good idea what you're doing. And if I forgive you your debt, your debt's forgiven. What he said to me next was monumental. One of those things that changed my life. And it took me a couple of years to catch it. It Took him to die for me to catch it. What he said to me next, he just looked at me and smiled. He said, Hell, it wasn't ever about the money. He said, I just wanted to see if your word was any good. When he died, he wanted me to do the eulogy at his funeral. Right? He wanted me to be the one to held his hand when he was dying. Right? Not my sisters, not my mom. Right? Uh, right? That kind of thing. Right? And what happened was that through that process, it healed him. It didn't heal me. It healed him. See? He knew that his punk boy had turned into a man. 
right? That I, was, that I wasn't any longer going to take the easy way out. He says to me, last thing he said to me, right? You take care of your mom. <clears throat> I said, okay, I will, right? That was dumb. Right? <laughs> Who knew she was going to live this long? <laughs> I've tried to, I've prayed every day since Memorial Day in 1992. I've gotten on my knees every single morning and prayed. And I'm not a big time meditator, right? I do some stuff. I follow some principles and I do it. And my life has been about carrying this message to other folks. That's what the central fact of my life is, carrying this message to other folks, looking for folks that got a hollow look in their eyes. It's absolutely hopeless. I try to make my life be about that. And I don't talk to folks about it, folks that aren't, one of us. I don't talk to him about it too much. This last Memorial Day, I'm going to tell you this story and I'm going to be quiet. This, and I think that this story makes total sense of what Alcoholics Anonymous does for us. Not for me, but for us. This last Memorial Day, my stepson, uh, who's 27, uh, uh, he was 20 when his mom and I got together. Uh, my stepson was sitting in a treatment center. And uh, we went up and spent Saturday with him. And he started to ask me all kinds of questions. And I told him the truth. And we talked, me and him talked for about four or five hours. We went home Saturday night, watched a movie, me and his mom. Sunday night, I went to Movie's car. His car was parked at our house, and I went to Movie's car, and I heard the most god-awful sound I'd ever heard come out of a rear wheel in my life, right? Uh, man, this kid's driving around with a locked-up brake. So his mom went to work on Monday, Memorial Day weekend, and when she left for work, I went out and got his car and backed it in my garage, and I'm not much of a mechanic. I know just about enough to be really dangerous to me and anybody that will trust me with their car, really. <laughs> It took me about three hours to get the hub off, and then I found out what the problem was, right? And I did a little bit of welding on it and stuff. And got things back together. Pulled his dipstick out and saw the nastiest oil that I've seen since the summer of 1986. <laughs> and so I changed the oil in it for him and stuff. And it, I got done about 4.30 in the afternoon, his mom come home and I was getting ready to get in his car and I'm all greasy and dirty and sweaty and bug bites. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, he had some problems with his car. And she said, you've spent all day working on his car. I said, yeah, I have. And she kissed me. Right? She said, why would you do that for him? And I looked at her and said, because he didn't need a plane ticket. She said, what? And I said, never mind. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.